The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So these beautiful values and intentions that we can become conscious of, peace, hope, authenticity, connectedness, compassion, kindness, empathy, skillfulness, integration, energy, health, belonging. It's always so moving for me to just articulate uh, the potential that we have as human beings, right? And then the question is, is always how? How? We can become conscious of these values and these intentions in our life. We can know the possibility that's available to us as human beings because we've tasted it, we've seen it, we've experienced it in certain moments. And then we, and then we recognize with the time that we have on this planet, we can, we can shift things, we can mold our minds, our, our habits to move in that direction. And that's the power and the, uh, the gift of contemplative practice, of, tr- of, of all forms of religious and spiritual training, and, and many other kinds of practices that, that help us to realize our potential. And so as I was saying earlier, for me, that question of how to bridge the gap was uh, one of the things that inspired me to take up the practice of communication as a core and integral part of my own spiritual and contemplative path to see how do we translate the deep values of our silent uh, meditation practice and bring it into our relationships, our families, our friendships, our work, our society. What are the methods for doing that? I think as as Dharma practitioners, um, we have a distinct advantage and a distinct disadvantage often in looking at this this question of bridging the gap and integration and bringing these values into speech and relationships and uh, work and, and social change. I think the great advantage that we have is a profound respect and appreciation for silence. We understand the value of emptiness, of leaving space, the the deep healing power of that and the generative power of silence, that there can be no speech without silence. There can be no movement without stillness. And there's there's an honoring there. And and we we study silence. We study, how do I learn from that which is quiet? How do, how do I learn to quiet the mind? And that's a great skill that, uh, that isn't found or taught 
in day-to-day life. Another distinct advantage, or, or which is not unique to, to Dharma practice, but is highlighted, is the, the beautiful values of the path, the values of wisdom and compassion, the, um, the understanding uh, of shared humanity, you know, that all beings want to be happy and that we share that with one another, however divergent our views or opinions or beliefs, however much we can disagree about our choices or actions in life, that, that we share something fundamental in just being alive. We share the potential for goodness and awakening, and we share the yearning uh, to realize that potential in some way. So these form a foundation for this, this, this bridging, this integration. I think one of the disadvantages that's, that's not universal but common is that in the appreciation for silence, in the honoring of silence, there can be a reluctance to speak. The silence can become a mask or a shield that we hide behind. Oh, I just need to sit. I just need to work this out in myself. This is, this is my karma. This is my attachment. And we can, we, in the middle path, we can fall from the center into the side of complacency or inaction. Whether it's in our, in our personal relationships to not actually be authentic, to bring forward our own truth and uh, have the courage to engage with the difficult things and say, you know, this is hard for me. I'm not sure how to work it out, but something feels off here and I'd like to explore it together. And we can fall in the same, uh, the same side of complacency in action, uh, and silence uh, in our communities and society, thinking that the the resolution is is only through inner transformation and not take action to speak up for the things that we believe in or to take a stand against uh, policies or actions that we believe are causing harm to uh, other beings human non human the planet. So this, this path of practice is holistic. It's, it's, it's not meant to be one or the other. We talk a lot about the Dharma. You hear a lot in, in this particular um, school or tradition of insight meditation, the way the Theravada has, has come to exist uh, in the West among uh, not exclusively, but primarily convert Buddhists, those of us who were born into another religion and became Buddhist at some point or, or have taken on the practice, whether or not we identify with that as a religion or a path. We talk a lot about the Dharma and the Triple Gem and the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha and the power and the beauty and the refuge. And if you look at the teachings, the Buddha always talked about the Dharma in combination with something else. He said, I teach Dhamma Vinaya. And he talked about the, Dharm, the Dhamma Vinaya. And when he, when he passed, he said, the Dhamma Vinaya will be your teacher. And so what's this, this, this other part, the Vinaya? How much do we talk about that? How many of you 
don't know what that is, haven't heard the word. So more than half, right? So the vinaya is the code of conduct. Those are the guidelines for how we live in the world. Mostly we don't hear about it because it's, it's the hundreds and sometimes thousands of rules for the monastics, the monks and the nuns, those who are formally ordained. But the Buddhist community is not just monastics. The Buddha talked about the fourfold sasana, the fourfold community. And one of his intentions was to make sure that the fourfold sangha was established before he died. And what is the fourfold sangha? The community of monks and nuns, laymen and laywomen. Very gender binary. We're talking about 2,600 years ago, even though we know that in other cultures there's often third, uh, third gender or non-gender conforming examples. Uh, but this was the Buddha's vision, this, this balance of both ordained monastics and lay practitioners, and they support one another. And the teachings that he offered were Dhammavinya, the teachings of the path and the truth and the practice, and the outline of how to live, the code of conduct. For those of us who were not ordained, which I think is probably most of us in the room, uh, that's the five precepts. Very broad, but also very deep training. And one of those precepts is about what we say, how we speak and listen. When we forget that the path is not just about the Dharma, it's about the Dhamma Vinaya, it becomes fragmented. We become disconnected from our place in the world. We're not isolated beings. We have a connection with our family, with our community, with our trade, with our society. We are embedded in a culture, in a particular historical time. And all of those layers of relationship have particular uh, needs that are called forth from us. Our family has particular requests and expectations of us, our friends and our friend community, our work community, our neighborhood, our society, our country, our planet, all have various uh, needs and uh, expectations of us as human beings. And if all we do is go inside and meditate, we're leaving out part of the picture. The Buddha said this is the middle path. I felt very nervous last night and today coming here. I generally feel nervous when I teach about communication stuff. It's interesting. When I teach a dharma, just meditation, I I don't usually feel nervous. I find it much easier to teach meditation than to teach communication. So with meditation, you're just dealing with one person's mind and body. (laughs) As soon as you add in the complexity of more variables, it gets so complicated. That's not the only reason I felt nervous. I felt nervous because I sensed my own limitations, my own inadequacy in this area. I've learned a few things, and hopefully some of what we do today will be useful for you. 
and that you will leave with some uh, new understandings and some concrete practices to bring into your life. I sincerely hope that and I have confidence that for many of you that will happen. At the same time, I'm acutely aware that my own understanding of these tools and this practice, both in terms of the Dharma, the meditation, and the the practice of, of right speech and the ancillary supports of nonviolent communication that I that I teach and practice, that my understanding of these tools is limited by my own life experience. And that I've grown up um, living in a male-identified body, heterosexual, uh, with white skin, with a certain amount of um, economic privilege and education privilege. And the true power of these tools is, is not about making our lives more comfortable. It's not about it's not only about improving our relationship with our wife or husband or partner or our coworker or our friend. Uh, it's, it's about radically transforming our understanding of what it is to be a member of the human family. And what are our responsibilities to one another? What are our responsibilities to the planet? And, and given the privilege that I enjoy in my life, I can kind of go along from day to day without being in touch with the vast suffering that's, that's happening for billions of people on the planet. It's staggering. It's staggering the disconnect that can be there if I don't actively push myself to be uncomfortable. So I say all of this um, because my deepest intention is that these tools uh, support us to wake up in the most profound way which means stepping into our, each of our sense of individual empowerment to work for change in our families, in our relationships, and in our communities, in our society, and to have some of the tools that are so needed today to start to bridge the gap between what's possible and what's happening. And the Buddha, in his, in his insight and his brilliance, understood the power of language, the power of speech to support or what's the opposite of support? Undermine, thank you. To support or to undermine um, our potential for awakening, individually and collectively in society. And, and you see this if you start to look and study the structure of the Buddha's teachings. So you look at the five precepts, 
And the Buddha says, if you're interested in awakening, these are the guidelines to follow for your life. And one of those five things that he singled out right up there with don't kill one another, don't steal from one another, is take care with your words. Try to speak truthfully, kindly, at the right time, in a way that's helpful, connected with meaning and purpose. Pay attention to that. Train yourself in that. If you look at the Eightfold Path, which was the Buddha's, one of the, one of the templates he used to summarize this whole integrated training of Dhammavinya, a, uh, a vehicle for, for transformation, wisdom, uh, virtue, character, and uh, meditation, training the mind and the heart. All of the other characteristics of ethical action in the world, the, the four other precepts, are encompassed under right action. Killing, stealing, our livelihood, our sexual relationships. Speech gets its own place in the path, in the Eightfold Path. It's that important. Not only that, but after the training in wisdom, the training in right view and right intention, the very next thing in the Eightfold Path is speech, what we say. Pay attention to what you say. Pay attention to how you think. The words that are inside. So if we begin to contemplate the role of language in our life, we see how powerful it is. We're communicating pretty much all day long for most of us. Maybe we get a few minutes during a sitting where things quiet down. Or, you know, you're taking a walk and the mind settles. But, you know, from the moment we wake up, usually the narrative starts the narrative of our life, of who we are and what we have to do and all of that. We're reading the news, we're texting, we're emailing, we're talking, we're listening, we're engaging with words and speech all day long. And it's shaping our perception of reality. It's shaping our experience of ourself, of one another, and of the world. And if you just, if you just contemplate for a moment... The, the potency of language, the great potential for, for harm. Think about words that someone has said to you that cut, you know, that still sting. Or maybe something that we said to someone else. And once it's out, we can't take it back. Sometimes words can break a relationship in a way that we never find a way to repair. They're that powerful. Or we look on the collective level and we see the power of language to manipulate, to advance political agendas, to shape and mold the perception in the mind of other people. They are the enemy and how language has been used for great harm throughout history to divide people. And then we look at the other side, the potential for good and healing. And just think of, you know, someone who's been there in a, in a time of need for you, who's offered a few words of encouragement and how meaningful and healing that can be. 
the Buddha said, better than a thousand useless words is one word which brings peace. So coming back to this question of how, how do we bridge this gap? How do we take this deep commitment to these beautiful values that are bringing us together today? What we sense is our potential as human beings into the world on, on, on all levels. So I want to share with you today a range of practices And this is really just a taste. This is really just a taste of what's possible in this realm. Because because speech is such an integral part of most of our lives, some of us might live fairly uh, uh, kind of like a hermit. There's no value judgment in that. Some people, if you're an artist or a writer, you might spend a lot of time alone. You don't have a lot of interaction. Um, even then, words are, are present for us. Um, but because of the, the, the how much energy and time and space communication takes up in our life, and because of its potency, because of the tremendous power words carry, when we take on the practice of right speech as an integral part of our own spiritual cultivation, the potential for transformation is great. We're doing it all the time and it's potent. So there's always something to practice with and there's immediate feedback. We see when, when we don't speak skillfully, we get that feedback pretty quickly. And when we're able to speak skillfully, we feel that feedback. So the range of skills that I want to explore today, just to give you a little bit of an overview. First, we're going to look, we're going to do kind of just a first pass at the Buddha's basic guidelines for right speech. And he offered many, many guidelines. We'll just look at one core structure. Then we'll we'll look, so this morning we're going to be looking at the foundations of right speech, the the Buddha's guidelines and how to bring more mindfulness and awareness into our communication. And those those are some of the foundations. Then in the afternoon, we'll start to look at some of the mechanics. Specifically, how do we start to speak and listen more skillfully? So the most common way that the Buddha talks about right speech in the texts is in the negative. Talks about what not to do. And he defines right speech as refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, speech that separates us from one another, and idle speech. So just useless, just wasting our energy with words, gossiping and wasting our energy. We look at the, the flip side of that. He also talks about the, the positive attributes of right speech and talks about saying that which is true, speaking in a way that's kind, 
or affectionate. Um, and it talks about where we're coming from inside. Are we connected to kindness and to a sense of purpose? That there's a, there's a purpose behind our speech. It's connected to some useful end. And then speaking at the right time, in the right context, the right time, in the right place, having a sense of that. So I want to read to you um, one, of the, one of the things that had a profound effect on me in this journey of looking at these questions, and that's um, a version of Thich Nhat Hanh's modern rendering of the Buddha's guidelines on right speech. And as, as you listen to this, you'll hear these elements of um, false speech or saying what's true, harsh speech or speaking kindly, um, divisive speech or speaking with a connected to a sense of purpose or idle speech versus speaking in a way that's um, meaningful at the right time in the right place. So this is what Thich Nhat Hanh writes. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and to relieve others of suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering. I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I'm determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I'm not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord or words that can cause the family or the community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. It's a pretty, pretty large vision of what's possible. Yeah. And so we can orient around this. We can, and I, I love that he says, I vow to learn to speak truthfully. Not I vow to speak truthfully, which, it, which expects that we're perfect from the beginning, but I vow to learn. So this is a training, this is a learning. So I want to speak for a few more minutes about the Buddha's guidelines on right speech. And then I want to invite all of us to reflect on how we relate to this teaching. The areas in our life that we feel like we have uh, some traction and strength. And the areas in our life that we see we could stand to learn and improve our habits. So the first thing I want to 
acknowledge or or share is that the 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 practice of right speech sometimes translated as wise speech is in service of awakening that's what makes it right speech that's what makes it samma vacha so the eightfold path what makes it uh, the noble eightfold path is where it's going, the intention and the orientation behind it. So what makes something right speech or wise speech is that it's, it's leading to awakening. It's furthering our own and others' liberation, individually, collectively. What does that mean? In, in many places in the suttas, the Buddha has kind of a threefold checklist or criteria for what goes in the direction of awakening of awakening it increases wholesome qualities it decreases unwholesome qualities and it leads to peace so can we use our words in this way can we use our thoughts our speech in a way that enhances the helpful, beneficial qualities in our own hearts and minds and the hearts and minds of others? Can we use our words, our speaking, our listening in ways that reduce the unhelpful qualities in our own hearts and minds and the hearts and minds of others? This is one of the criteria the Buddha gives for right speech. He says, I don't say that everything that is heard, seen, or thought of should be spoken. In other words, it's not always helpful to say everything that you know. (laughs) And I don't say that everything that is heard, seen, or thought of should not be spoken. It's not that you just don't say anything. To the degree that what we say increases wholesome qualities and decreases unwholesome qualities, to that extent should things be spoken of. So when you start to look at the various Uh, templates that the Buddha gives for right speech in the texts, and there are many, you start to get a sense that it's a very flexible practice and it's context sensitive. It's not an absolute. It's not only and always say this and never say that. It's based on the situation. Sometimes we might have to say things that are difficult to hear, that are true, that are connected to a purpose, that are coming from a place of of goodwill inside, but they might be kind of sharp or hard to hear. And in, in that case, the Buddha says we should know the right time and place to say it. So it's a flexible practice that depends a lot on the circumstances, our intention, and the, and the, uh, the effect. Does it, does it go in the direction of more wholesome qualities, less unwholesome qualities, and peacefulness. So I want to speak about just this core template that the Buddha offers of um, the guidelines for right speech. And uh, when we look at these, we see that they, they bridge two different parts of speaking. On the one hand, they point to our intentions, where we're coming from, and being clear about our intentions, but they also include the impact, the outcome of our speaking, 
and that both need to be taken into consideration. Not just, oh, well, I meant well. Do we have the skillfulness to speak in a way that's going to be helpful? So false speech are words that are spoken with the intent of misrepresenting the truth, of deceitfulness. Divisive speech, words that are spoken with the intention of separating people, creating a rift. Harsh speech, words that are spoken with the intent of harm or sometimes just with blindness, with ignorance behind what's coloring our words. And then idle chatter, words that are spoken with no purpose at all, just meaningless. So the criteria that the Buddha offers can be summarized um, in, in uh, four, four, uh, four main qualities. Saying that which is true, that which is useful, that which is kind, it's connected to a good heart and has a meaningful purpose behind it. And, that, and the right time, the appropriateness of context. True, useful, kind, timely. Right time, right place. So I want to speak about each of these just in, in uh, a little bit more, kind of tease them out. What do they refer to? And as I share, I want you to reflect and see which of these are you stronger in? As you listen, you're like, yeah, that, that matches. You know, I, I make an effort in that direction. And which do you stand to improve in? Which do you listen to and you go, you know, I could pay attention to that more. So truthfulness. The Buddha was really strong on this. In many places, he says, he talks about the um, lying as like a gateway, <laughs> not a gateway drug, but like a gateway unwholesome behavior. He says, you know, one who would deliberately tell a lie, there's nothing that you won't do unwholesome. Once we bridge that first uh, kind of ethical line of deceit. Being honest is a prerequisite for, for trust and safety in relationships, right? If there's not that foundation of honesty, it's very difficult to establish any sense of trust. Not being truthful agitates the mind. This whole path, this whole practice is about coming to know the truth more deeply. Seeing things clearly in our own minds and in the way things are working in our relationships and our society. And as soon as we start uh, wavering from that commitment to truthfulness, we're off the path. Being truthful is a tenet for creating a better society. And just think about what it would be like if there were uh, an unwavering commitment to honesty and truthfulness in government and politics. How that would transform the public discourse if that was a given, right? This is powerful. So it supports our practice, it supports our society, it supports trust and safety in our relationships. And it supports simplicity. When we're committed to honesty and truthfulness, Things get a lot simpler. When we start lying or, or bending the truth, things get very complicated. Who did we tell what to and why and so forth? So truthfulness. Saying that which is useful. So we can, we can be honest and tell the truth, but still cause harm. Right? Is this useful? What's the purpose behind this? Why am I speaking? Is this really worth saying? 
Will this contribute in some meaningful way? Is it necessary or is this just gossip? You know, sometimes we say things uh, just to fill the silence. We talk about people who aren't present as a, as a way of um, aligning ourselves with one another. Are we wasting our energy? So when our, when our speech is not deliberate and purposeful, it tends to go in the direction of the unwholesome. When we don't know why we're speaking or we're not connected to a meaningful purpose. So do we know why we're speaking, why we're opening our mouth? kind, speech that's kind, that's connected to the good heart. So this isn't about avoiding conflict or being nice all the time, but being able to have that spirit of goodwill inside, even if we have to say something difficult, being really rooted in a clear intention of kindness. Sometimes kindness means not saying something. Right. In, uh, in many situations, one of the most under-practiced communication tools is just refraining <laughs> from opening the mouth, not acting on that impulse to say something that might be hurtful. But sometimes we err on the side of not saying anything because we don't know how, and we want to avoid the awkwardness of stumbling through, or we're afraid of hurting someone. But can we, can we really root ourselves in the wholesomeness of our intention and trust that as a guide if we really come from that place. And then this last component of timeliness or the appropriateness of the context, and this is really crucial. We can be honest, have a really clear purpose in mind, be really connected to a sense of kindness and goodwill, but it's just not the right time. You know, we we never know where someone is at. And do we think, do we have the presence of mind to check, to say, I'd like to talk to you about something. I'm wondering if now's a good time. To give someone a heads up and have consent around entering a conversation in a specific topic. So these guidelines are also also related. They flex with one another. And the effect, what's the effect of of when our speech uh, has these qualities of being true, useful, kind, and timely. It's a gift. It's a gift. We we shape our own mind in a meaningful way. Because what do we need to let go of? To say things, to, to avoid false speech, harsh speech, idle speech, divisive speech. What are the forces in our own mind, the habits that we need to put down? to not speak in those ways? What are the qualities that we have to cultivate to say that which is true, useful, kind, and timely? It shapes our own mind in a certain way and it it improves our own relationships. It enhances trust and respect. It promotes peace and begins to create a certain kind of atmosphere around us. So what I'd like to invite us to do now is to form, um, to form some small groups and to reflect on these guidelines and to have each person share um, 
what's a, what's a guideline that you feel strong in? What's a strength of yours? And what's one that you'd like to improve in, that you would like to pay more attention to in your life? Uh, so let's see. Let's, uh, let's form groups of, of four and uh, we'll take 20 minutes. So that'll be about five minutes per person. And um, you could do this uh, several different ways. You could have each person share both. So this is an area of strength of mine. This is a challenge and have each person take five minutes. Or you could each do a strength, go around once, then each do a challenge and go around a second time. Or you could be creative and just kind of freestyle it, okay? Mm-hmm.